Yeah, I would say anything that anything that pulls at the heartstrings is is definitely always great content. So when you're able to you know, convey a story or, or, or tell, you know, something that brings out emotions in people, helps people connect to that individual or to that story. That That's definitely the, the best content. You know, in my time with some of the the videos and, and stories that I've been able to tell over time, those, those have definitely been the most effective in both just impact as well as when you're looking at the metrics, when you're looking at, you know, impressions and reach and the type of stories that people share on social media definitely always has an emotional connection. Good evening, good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world. Welcome back to a brand new episode of Social Compost. And we are back with Sean Luke on the right and me, your host, Diego. And we have a very interesting episode again for you guys today uh, with another international guest. But before we go right into it, guys, welcome. And just some quick announcements. All the episodes we're back on track are all live on the website. Uh, we've updated them with transcripts as well. So for those who want to listen and read, can check those out as well. And we already got a shout out from the chat from YouTube from Saf. We missed you, Saf. Great to see you on again. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Sean, look. I don't want to give you a compliment because I just looked at a website and wow, I mean, everything has been filled in. All the episodes are fully up to date. So my compliments to you, man, Diego. It looks it looks really, really neat. Thanks, man. Thanks. It's a team effort. <laughs> it's a team effort. Yeah. I, 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 thank you for giving me some credit. Hey, so today's guest is someone very special. He's all the way from Atlanta. And I actually met him in 2014 in San Diego. So Diego, here's the funny thing about what I remember from 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 that week. Basically, it wasn't a week. I think it were three three days. It was a, a conference of three three or four days, and there was some kind of snowball effect that happened that a lot of people from different parts and different kind of companies came together. And after the conference, I was actually, I was like, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, and then. One of the guys from the group was like, hey, listen, we're going to have something to eat. Join us. It's going to be fun. And that's actually how the group, how I met the whole group, because I only know a couple of people from the group. And one of them was this young guy who was really dressed nicely because I saw him before during the conference. And then we got into a talk and he told me a story about how you have to run a corporate email marketing for a group of over a hundred thousand clients and i was like wait that's like about 20 percent of our whole population of Suriname." and we got into a talk it was a lot of fun so we might get into a little bit detail about about those years in 2014 in a minute but right now i want to introduce the guy who has the name of a professional athlete he has the looks of a CEO of a Fortune 500 uh, company. And especially today, he decided to also wear a cap for us. But in heart, he's really a family man and a very nice guy. So hey, let's introduce Isaac Turner. Welcome. 
Hey, how you doing? Isaac, welcome to Social Convos. Glad to yeah, have thanks. you here. Yeah, and, glad uh, to be to, here. Apparently, Sean Luke always meets these interesting people on conferences. So from your side, how are, I guess, conferences in general for you when you go to these, you know, international events? What do you usually experience uh, being there in the States and meeting new people? What, what's that experience generally for you? Oh, well, you know, it's always a lot of fun. Always great to go to the conferences and get insights from others and just learn more from other people and what they're doing and how they're doing it. And so when I met Jean-Luc, like he said, it was it was interesting because we had kind of like a random assortment of, of people from just all over the place. And we just all kind of clicked, like ba basically day one of the conference in San Diego. And all of us were doing very, you know, similar things when it comes to digital marketing and content marketing. And at that time, it was still kind of, a lot of the, the topics were still kind of fresh. You know, of course there was social media, but social media marketing was just kind of becoming its own thing. You know, content marketing, was basically like a, a new concept at that time. And so all of us were, uh, you know, just trying to learn more and we all came together and yeah, it, it, it was great. I, I love going to the conferences and like I said, just picking up tips and, and learn what others are doing. So awesome. it was really interesting, Diego, just, just to give you an idea, like, so, so Isaac is, is really was already in the corporate world and he was wearing these nice suits. And for me, I was the Surinamese guy who wasn't used to the California weather. So I, I don't know, like for us, when we live in Suriname, we have like always have 30 uh, degrees Celsius weather. That's kind of what the weather okay. is like. And then we think in California, it must be nice and sunny. And then right. we get into this weather where you have to kind of, you still have to have at least one or two layers. And I didn't have anything packed. So I kind of felt I, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel threatened or anything by how stylish you were, but I was a bit jealous. Of, <laughs> like, okay, this is this is how you have to go to conferences, and I was just yeah, like hope, in a sports jacket, and that that was it for me. But I feel yeah, like I was yeah. I feel like I was overdressed most of the conference, <laughs> <laughs> and then especially with with our our group, like you said, what we started calling ourselves what the Snowball Crew, I believe it was. Yeah, shout out to the because, Snowball Crew, actually. Yeah. <laughs> started off as a small group and like as the conference continued to roll on just more and more people like, just kind of joined our, our circle so that was, that was pretty cool but yeah we had a, a wide assortment of, of people you know videographers photographers digital marketers uh, social media marketers just all kind of coming together and, and sharing ideas and and what we were doing in the space and and for our group in particular it was quite a few young people just kind of starting off in our careers and so I've actually been able to, you know, stay in contact with a lot of you guys. And so it's, it's been really cool. And a lot of people from, from that group are doing some pretty big things now. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so to, uh, Diego, to give a little bit of context, one of the people in the group ended up working for the Tyler Robinson Foundation and was named Utah's top 40 under 40. And she was, so she's really successful in that space. Another one actually is the is D-Rock, like the main yeah. uh, videographer for Gary Vaynerchuk. 
And it kind of that was like the the coming out party that was like, yeah, I'm gonna make a video for Gary Vaynerchuk. And we had like some of us had no idea who Gary Vaynerchuk was. So <laughs> he he was saying like, I'm gonna do this for Gary Vaynerchuk. Actually, his his partner at the time, business partner at the time, told us, and we were like, yeah. And and we just didn't know some some of us didn't know any of those of those legends, social media legends at the time. But after that year, we kind of started learning. From it, so there were really, and there are a lot of interesting people in that group who've done amazing things. And one of you, one of them is, of course, Isaac. And Isaac, you mentioned something interesting because at the time, social media was kind of still in the starting phase. And I'm, I'm wondering because you study journalism, mm -hmm. so at the time when you were studying journalism, was social media already part of the curriculum that people were already putting it? Were there already certain? classes being taught on social media? Yeah, at, at the time I was in school, so I went to Auburn University, studied journalism there, was there from uh, 2004, graduated in 2008. And so at that time, really the, the main social media channel was Twitter. And even in that space, you know, the primary goal there as far as journalism was going was basically to, you know, tweet out breaking news, link back to your, your newspaper website. And so at that time, Facebook was, you know, still somewhat new because that broke right around 2004, 2005. And then, you know, for the first couple of years of Facebook, it was primarily for students. So if you went to, you know, university or college, you were able to, to access Facebook that way before they opened it up to everyone. And so at that point, as far as my curriculum went, uh, social media was a, a, a small part of it and primarily focused on, you know, using Twitter as a way to drive traffic back to your, to your article. But outside of that, you know, the, of course there wasn't, you know, the video components, there wasn't, you know, any live video at that time. And so at that point, actually, I, I would probably argue that MySpace was probably <laughs> still more popular than Facebook. At My, MySpace so, was bigger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So from, from a, a journalistic perspective, there, there wasn't too much being done in the space at that time. So how does one get from, you know, getting your degree in journalism in 2018, 2008, social media just in its infancy, how does one go from journalism to the corporate world? But before you answer that, can you define the confines of what we should understand within the, what is corporate communications? Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I really depending upon the organization, you know, everyone treats it a little differently when it comes to digital marketing, a lot of the positions in which like positions similar to the, to the one that I sit in, they kind of fall into two categories. I mean, some organizations, they fall under corporate communications and others is more of a market strategy or marketing. You may find uh, the positions there. And then sometimes you have a little bit of both. And so from a corporate communication standpoint, I would say that the focus of a digital marketer in that world is more of uh, branding, storytelling, trying to build brand affinity for the brand, kind of telling the brand story, where if you look at it from strictly like a marketing perspective, so if you're in, in marketing, market strategy, there is more about driving sales. And so in that space, you know, it's about, of course, driving people back to the website, you know, trying to make sure that you're pulling in conversions where on in my role now, it's a little bit more about just, you know, getting those impressions and, and reach and making sure that our story is, is, is being told. And how did you get 
into that world in the first place? What was the bridge from journalism to that world? Yeah. So when I graduated in, in 2008 here in the United States, and that was during the economic downturn. And so a lot of newspapers and, and I primarily stayed with, with print journalism and so and, and also primarily sports. And so at the time that I graduated, a lot of newspapers were actually laying off reporters. There were a lot of furloughs at the time. And so it was pretty hard to find a position in journalism at that point, especially in print. And then, as you know, also at that time, you have where a lot of newspapers were going through the transition of going from print to, you know, strictly online. There was a lot of talk about, you know, hey, do we do we keep printing? You know, do we focus more online? There's a, a lot of transition there as well. And so when I graduated, I actually ended up going into just retail. And so from my retail positions, you know, went to retail management at a couple of different stores. And from there, that led into a position at a local financial institution there. So I actually worked for a credit union, just, you know, on the teller line, cashing people's checks, opening bank, bank accounts, <laughs> things of that nature. And at that time, the financial institution I worked for was going through an online banking conversion. And so they needed a lot of content to be developed for their customers in regards to just how to use the new online banking system, you know, instructional material and things of that nature. And so they knew that I had a degree in journalism and that I was a writer. And so I got a call from HR one day. It was like, hey, we see that you're, <laughs> we see that you're <laughs> you have a degree. Would you like to, you know, kind of move to a marketing department and help them out? We have a lot of content that needs to be written and it needs to be written fast. So, uh, and I was like, yeah, sure. So uh, yeah, went sure. to the marketing department and started developing that content. And then from there, that basically kind of walked me into developing more content for their website. I took over their social media channels and kind of led those efforts to start running campaigns for them there. Also email marketing as well. So start developing content for that based off the online banking conversion. And so once the online banking conversion was over, it was like, well, you know, you've developed all this content, you uh, know how to use all these assets and tools. And so they kept me on there as a digital marketing coordinator. And at that point, it wasn't too long after that, that I actually went to the conference that we were talking about in, in San Diego. And so that was really my first conference regarding digital marketing and, and social media marketing. And so they went there, I was trying to soak up everything, you know, just be a sponge. And then also just soaking up just all the content and tips and connections that I made there. And basically kind of self-taught when it came to, you know, email marketing and social media marketing. Luckily for me, at that point, it was, at, you know, kind of the very beginning of, you know, that world of that field being specific to, to those uh, assets. And so it, it just all kind of fell into place. And so yeah. I was there at the financial institution, was promoted to director of digital marketing there. And then from there, moved over to a Southern company, which is a, one of the top energy companies in, in the United States. So it's like you're actually your background in journalism, got your foot into that door and specifically the, the writing skill that comes, goes paired with journalism. Right. So if you look at it back then and reflecting back to now, how important or how much weight does a skill such as writing have in this space? Yes, I, I would argue that it's, it's very important. And what's interesting is that 
a lot of journalists have kind of transitioned over into the world of, of content marketing. Having a strong writing background definitely helps. You, you know, you have to be able to, to express ideas in a short and concise way, especially for social media. And then also for those more long form content marketing pieces, it helps to be able to basically develop that yourself. So when you have the ability to, you know, go out and kind of get the story in the same way that you would as a reporter in the corporate space, it definitely helps and definitely opens some doors when it comes to, to content marketing and digital marketing. So I, I just want to put this into context because we're talking here about Max Credit Union. And if I think I remember yes, correct, yes, correctly, that's correct. how, how, how big is, because we're talking corporate. So what, what are kind of size employee wise should we talk about when we talk about such a company? Yeah. So uh, yeah, at Max Credit Union, it was a uh, $1 billion institution in assets. There's probably, I would say probably about 250 to 300 employees total. They serve the central Alabama area. And I would say approximately probably like 200,000 customers or so. Yeah. And so, yeah. And so, uh, so stepping in, that was definitely a, a, a pretty big role as, as far as, you know, just stepping in and being able to dive into digital marketing at an institution like that, that was larger in size, definitely gave me the advantage of being able to use some more advanced tools and kind of have the backing of, you know, the, the financial backing in order to grab the tools that we needed, utilize different agencies and things of that nature. So I definitely learned a lot being there. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's, it's interesting because we also here, for my company, for instance, we work together with Agora Pills. And like one of the issues that we had like locally is that at a certain point, of course, the prices are in US dollars. And we had a devaluation of our local currency, which meant like we would make a deal with a company and then a year later, the, the price would be twice as high in our local currency, yeah. which would be like, okay, but we can actually hire somebody. So can we stop using the software? But I think what is interesting is that we have a similar situation here and you've ex experienced it when it was still coming up, social media was still coming up, but not necessarily that, but also being like a young person in a very big organization where a lot of people have like no knowledge on the subject. Like they don't know what a Facebook uh, newsfeed looks like. And right. even for our, most innovative banks locally, most of them have been on, on social media for, for max five years. So what advice would you give like to young professionals that come into a position like a, in, into a big company, they come into a position where there's already certain marketing guidelines, like often they're complete branding brand guidelines and they're complete like offline marketing. It's kind of set up already. But right. in, in the digital space, everybody's like, okay, we're looking at you and you come up with it. What what are kind of things that you've learned that are important to know when you get into such a position? So what's, what's funny is starting there, like you said, it, it is a big organization, but now looking back and it's like in comparison to the position I'm in now, where, you know, Southern Company as a whole serves like 9 million customers, man, more specifically who I work for, Southern Company Gas. You know, we're serving uh, about 4.4 million, I believe it is. So that is, is you know, looking back, it's, it's almost seems small, but I would say that for anyone entering a, a large organization, when it comes to digital marketing, and especially if you're, if you're kind of starting, you know, their efforts, I would say, first of all, just set reasonable goals, look at what assets and what channels they're already using 
and then focus on creating a strategy that is going to be effective versus, you know, just trying to put out volume, a volume of content across so many channels. I, I feel like a lot of companies want to be in every single space and that's not necessary. So, you know, every single social media channel that pops up, you know, you have companies like diving to be one of the first there. And the thing is, there's no point in being there if you're not going to have the content that is catered towards that audience and that channel and that group. And so for someone just, you know, starting in a company, I would say really hone in on number one, your brand voice and what your brand is going to represent and, and have an idea of, you know, what type of content you're going to have, how fun the brand may decide to be, because that can also help you determine what channels you need to be on and then start developing content for those channels specifically. And, and, and focus in on whichever channels that you're going to be using in the social media space. You talked about digital marketing, about for on a smaller scale, it's about driving sales. And on a more corporate scale, it's more about the brand image and how you co communicate and the impressions. So what would you define, how would you define a brand voice in the first place? And how does a company at that size develop it? Yeah, so with your with your branding guidelines, just like you have, you know, a certain look, you also want to have a certain voice. And so when we're talking about voice, we're talking about the way in which the company kind of conveys their message and the words and terms and, and basically the, the feeling in which they convey that message. So I'm thinking of just adjectives like, you know, friendly. A lot of companies look to be, have that like neighborly voice. And so one of the things with, speaking to customers and consumers via social media and your website that you don't want to come across as you know being too stuffy or, or too corporate you want to kind of speak to people on the level at which you know you hold a regular conversation and so different brands have you know different voices and, and some brands are more fun more energetic other brands are still friendly but you know a little more buttoned up a little more serious and so if you look at brands like for instance like you know Wendy's on Twitter is a great example they're definitely you know way bashing that's almost bashing they're definitely uh you know on the fun side of, of the spectrum and when you're looking at you know using brand voice and, and how you're going to be portrayed and so developing a brand voice uh, you know Companies pay millions of dollars for agencies to, to help with that. Your more tenured, bigger companies kind of already have that established. Some of your smaller, newer brands, you know, are still developing that. And so I think it's just something that comes over time. And then with your messaging, you know, that voice is kind of developed. Could you talk to us about, because we talked about brand voice and going down to, I guess, the level of your consumer. Because when, when people hear corporate, big, millions of people, there's this big gap and disconnect. And before the call, we, we talked about, a bit about storytelling. Could, could you tell us a bit more how storytelling for a big company fits into this space and how corporates use storytelling to, I guess, connect with their consumers. Right. Yeah, connect to the customer. It's important. I, I feel like storytelling is, is very important, especially from a, a brand perspective. And now, especially considering that, you know, people are primarily getting uh, a lot of their branding and advertising from social media, 
and from websites, you know, from video, that's it's definitely an important factor. And so I guess this is where, you know, kind of like that background in journalism comes into play when you can combine both that and marketing since it's definitely beneficial to the brand. And so being able to tell those micro stories, like focus in on, you know, a particular group of customers or one particular customer and kind of tell their story, it's it allows you to connect to the customer. Of course, people feel more connected when, you know, you're looking at an individual, you know, versus, you know, a, a brand or versus, you know, an, an actress or actor on screen. When you're able to tell those real life, real time stories, it, it builds a brand affinity. And then also from, you know, philanthropy uh, standpoint, you know, when you're in the community, you're doing things and being able to capture those stories and, and tell them definitely helps build brand affinity. I know branding, uh, there's no one formula that fits all because it's very, you know, consumer specific. But if you had to break it down just to basic fundamental concept in storytelling, what constitutes as a strong story or what, what are the ingredients of a strong connecting story from your experience? Yeah, I would say anything that anything that pulls at the heartstrings is, is definitely always great content. So when you're able to, you know, convey a story or, or, or tell, you know, something that brings out emotions in people, helps people connect to that individual or to that story, that that's definitely the the best content. You know, in my time with some of the the videos and, and stories that I've been able to tell over time, those those have definitely been the most effective in both just impact as well as when you're looking at the metrics, when you're looking at, you know, impressions and reach and the type of stories that people share on social media definitely always has an emotional connection. Outside of that, I would say really a humor is another thing that always brings people together. And so, you know, anytime that you have content that makes people laugh or, or brings out, uh, you know, some type of nostalgia feeling, those always go a long way as, as well. So if you can bring those factors into a, a story, it's usually a home run. So this is kind of interesting. Before before I ask my question, I do want to do some quick shout outs. Ruben says, joins in us to say a great uh, topic. And Stephanie joins in on uh, LinkedIn saying, Wendy is B, definitely strong branding. So so let's let's take, for instance, like the style of Wendy, for example, they kind of roast people online. That's kind of their style. We, we get to see Instagram, we get to see a lot of Dutch companies that have a a certain style that they they respond they kind of respond in the style that the question is being asked so if the question is like street lingo they'll they'll respond to it in street lingo those kind of things which are really cool of course but then you get to the questions like we talked about a, a credit union we talk about an energy company like how do you bring the cool how do you bring the fun to those kind of companies and i mean like insurance companies like selling there are certain things that are just kind of hard to sell online like what kind of what kind of tips do you have for for people working in those kind of companies right well first you know there has to be that that appetite to kind of break the mold and, and do something different and do something a little more adventurous. And so uh, really baby steps, <laughs> I would say, would, would be the way to approach that. You know, you don't want to try to push the envelope too far. And then you also don't want to step outside of your kind of like existing branding. So it, it'd be a little crazy, you know, for, you know, you can see the kind of typical day-to-day -day marketing and posts from a company and then out of nowhere, they come with this, you know, 
crazy social media campaign or commercial or, or something along those lines. So I would say definitely taking baby steps. But for certain industries, like you said, you know, your medical industry, energy companies, things of that nature, where uh, the topic is a, a little more uh, serious, I think you have to find those areas where having a little more fun is, is applicable to the, to the situation or the topic that you're covering. And so there are opportunities there, you know, and there are opportunities to be kind of fun and, and, and express that, you know, more fun side of your brand, really depending upon the topic. And so I would say, you know, just, just look for those topics where you can be a little more fun natured. And then, you know, take the baby steps to try some some new things. And then once you see the results, you know, it's, it's really hard to argue with the results. And so if you're able to, you know, run a campaign that's maybe a little more fun in nature and then show the analytics behind it, then, of course, you'll probably have more buy-in when you come with another similar idea. Okay. Because I, I want to do go jump into the analytics part, but also another comment by Jair. Very good question, Shaluk. Well, of thank you for that one. But Jair, but also for everyone watching the live, because that's also the reason why we do this live is that while we're live, we do allow questions. So if you have a question uh, for Isaac, feel free just to drop it in the comments, whether you're watching on YouTube or, or LinkedIn or Facebook, feel, feel free to jump, jump in and ask any question. I think about digital marketing, I think Isaac has seen seen it, seen it all. Sub says, like how Geico sticks, 15 seconds or less could save you 15% on car insurance. We're not going to make it a, a commercial mode a kind of episode, but yeah, Geico does stick. And Stephanie wants to ask, what if an organization wants to completely 180 degree make a turn on their brand? How would you handle that? Is that... If, if you don't have a choice, like it's, it's a top-down approach, the top says you just have to jump a full 180. What, what, aside from, of course, baby steps, but how do you do mm -hmm. a baby step on a, on a 180 turn? Yeah, well, I think, first of all, you have to have, definitely have buy-in from, from those within the organization. So if leadership is you know, on board, I think that definitely makes it a lot easier. I think it also depends upon your industry and who your customers are. So if you're looking at, you know, maybe someone that's in a retail space, I think that's a lot easier to accomplish versus, you know, some other industries. And so in a retail space, I would say with that, if you're looking at doing a, a total rebrand, then that probably actually makes it easier because you're completely revamping the entire way that the company is presenting itself. However, if you're just looking at doing a 180 when it comes to just maybe your digital assets, your website, your social media, and things of that nature, it's important to kind of hold on to your, your foundational aspects of your company and your branding, and maybe look at doing something that's a little more innovative and creative just in the digital space. And so, yeah, I, I would say it really depends upon the industry, and then it also depends upon the, the buy-in from, from leadership at the organization. I think if you have, if you have the buy-in, then it's a lot easier to, you know, kind of do that 180. I want to know because I, it wasn't in my head, but I now have to ask the question. So if you have buy-in for TikTok, like Southern Company, does Southern Company have TikTok? No, we, we actually, no, we don't, we don't. And, uh, you know, other, under Southern Company, there are, are several, you know, industry energy companies under uh, that umbrella. But I do not believe anyone is on TikTok as of yet. And so that's, that's a space that, you know, we, 
you may see you may see us move into. I do know that there, you know, maybe some things in, in the works, but I I feel like TikTok is a is a unique social media channel. It's definitely useful in the retail space, but for uh, certain industries, it, it'll just be interesting to see. Uh, what type how, of how it would do it, Chad? What kind of developed. content it is? Yeah. Right, it'll be interesting to see what type of content is developed for that space, and, and and if it's received by that audience. And so I think that's you know the the combination that you have to have there when when looking at new social media platforms is number one, who's the audience? How is it being used? And then is your brand going to be received there? Or are you just going to be, you know, producing content that has really, you know, no, <laughs> no reason being there? So I think that's where a lot of strategy comes in, where you just have to kind of know your brand and know what spaces you need to be in. So I want to bring this into, I guess, a smaller context and in a context of Suriname. And with the more serious companies like energy company, like Southern Company, it's more usually cover a large market share. And if you look at, at it from a perspective of Suriname, the companies that operate in these spaces are usually you only have two or three of these companies and sometimes even just one. So if, if we're talking about a monopoly or a occupy, I never can pronounce that word, but you know, big companies in that space, how relevant is it still to do digital marketing if you already cover a large portion of the market share with no immediate threat of another company taking over that share because it won't drive more sales based on analytics i assume at least right so for for you know southern companies specifically like i said there's there's several different energy companies under that umbrella and then all have you know different goals and different different goals that they're trying to reach. And so, for instance, for Southern Company Gas specifically, which is the company that I work for, under us, there are four leading distribution companies. So we have Atlanta Gas Light, Chattanooga Gas, Nicor Gas, and Virginia Natural Gas. And so, like, like you said, in those spaces, it really depends upon, you know, what goals you're trying to reach. As far as driving sales, it's, it's interesting in the energy industry specifically because a lot of times the the customer or your, you know, your service areas is pretty much already selected for you. And so at that point, what you're trying to do is just continue to provide great customer service. And that's, that's one of the things you could do through social media. You can also inform the customer and that's a big part of what we do is just informing the customer of you know different aspects of just energy sector and energy uh industry safety is a big deal for us we push a lot of safety uh messaging to our customers and so you want to continue just to build that brand affinity so a lot of the community work that we do is featured on social media as well and so when it comes to sales, more specifically, I think for energy companies, what you like, what you likely will see is more specific to certain products. And so, of course, you know, energy efficiency is a is a huge deal. And so, you'll likely see the push for like smart thermostats, for instance, and then some of these other smart devices that help reduce energy use. And so that's one of the more specific ways in which you'll probably see more of a sales pitch or or digital marketing being used to target customers in order to to you know maybe make a specific type of purchase. 
So if, if I had to sum that up, it's basically at that stage, you just want to inform and keep your community, your uh, surface area, your consumers up to date that, you know, you're conforming with safety, that, you know, they can expect reliability from you guys, etc. It's not necessarily about getting more sales at that point anymore, right? Right. Yeah, that, that's that's correct for the most part. Yeah, because you definitely want to drive home that message of, you know, it's being safe, reliable, affordable. But like you said, you know, from from a sales standpoint, you're not necessarily trying to to sell the product as much as you are just trying to keep the customer informed, you know, of safety messaging and environmental messaging and, and things of that nature. In that aspect, if you go back to analytics, what would be some key performance indicators that you guys are looking for in those kind of analytics? The question away from me. That's exactly the question I wanted to ask Diego. Very good one. Yeah. So, so there for just brand messaging as a whole, you know, those bird, bird's eye view kind of analytics, such as reach impressions, you know, your click-through rates, those are always, and that's, you know, for any campaign, those are always important. More specifically for any type of, you know, specific messaging that you're pushing, of course, clicks through for a link. If we have an environmental story that is on our website that we want to, you know, promote things of that nature, that's always important. And then a lot of targeted messaging, you're looking at who's coming in. So you're looking more at the audience that is, you know, coming through the door for that type of messaging and then able to make adjustments and, and you know, kind of make tweaks from there. Then I guess something a little bit uh, different topic, but Jair just wants to know, but what are some successful storytelling strategies for a solopreneur wanting to create a community? Yeah. So in that case, I, I think, you know, the door is wide open there. And one of the good things there is that you have the ability to create your own branding. And so it allows you the flexibility to, you know, put out content as an individual or, you know, as your your company, your brand, and you pretty much have leeway to, to do with your brand what you want. And so I think it's important to, for, for one, when it comes to content, I think right now, video content you know, it's king. And so I would definitely suggest, you know, pushing video because video not only allows people to see your products and to see you, but it also allows people to get a sense of your personality. And, you know, that's, that's important as, you know, a solo entrepreneur. And so when people feel like they have a connection to you or they feel like, you know, you're, you're someone who, that they connect with definitely helps as far as, you know, maybe driving your product or your services home. So. I want to layer that a bit. So from solopreneur to working at a relatively big company from a few hundred thousand, and now you're serving millions of people. And I quickly check like Southern Company is like also publicly a stock listed. So if you have to layer those levels, how much does in each level the branding, storytelling, and the corporate communication differ in each level? I think the the main difference is probably just the amount of flexibility that you have. And then also, you know, the buy-in that you have to receive in order to, to maybe do some some certain things. So of course, with, with a smaller company, you know, it's most likely a, a closer connection to leadership. And so you're able to maybe 
gain some of that buy-in a little bit easier than you would at, at a much larger company. Also, there's probably a little bit more flexibility as far as being able to shift focus and introduce new marketing campaigns and new marketing strategies. With a much larger company, of course, you know, more people involved. And so a little bit more red tape to go through in order to to be able to make some of those shifts. Typically there's, you know, a, a much larger strategy in play. And so you have that macro strategy and then there's a lot of micro strategies in order to, to meet those macro goals. And so that also comes into play as well. So I would say that the, the smaller the brand, the smaller the company, probably the, the more flexibility you have. And then in a digital marketing space, it you probably can, you know, make adjustments a little bit quicker and, and kind of steer the boat in the way in which would benefit a digital marketing campaign a little bit more. In a larger company, I would say the digital marketing focus is a segment of, you know, a much larger strategy as a whole. And so I, I think that would, that would be the main difference. Cool. Quick, quickly for clarification, you've talked about buy-in a bit. And if we hear buy-in, should I imagine like buy-in from like the corporate overlords to the people on, on the top? Is that what you mean? To, to a certain degree, you know, at, at, a, at a larger company, I would say that there's typically, like I said, much larger strategies in place. And from a branding standpoint, there's, you know, an overall message that is trying to be told. And so everything that you're doing is geared towards you know, promoting that message and kind of pushing uh, that narrative forward at a, at a smaller brand that may not necessarily be the case. And so you may have a little bit more flexibility to kind of determine that story and that messaging yourself as the digital marketer. So how practical is that? I think that's, that's one of the things, for instance, we've worked for a couple of international franchises and it's always a struggle. Like one of the biggest struggles, and I'm talking about five five years ago in Suriname, was that at a certain point, people in Suriname began complaining towards companies, saying like, these people don't look like us. These are just stock images. Can you please? And then we, we experienced that with an with a international brand. Like they had a complete stock image site. So it, basically yeah. it's like, Wow, we don't have to shoot content because, and then you look at and and you look at the background of those photos, and you're like, yeah, but that looks nothing like the Caribbean. It looks nothing like Suriname. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we we're, we're kind of stuck. So from a practicality standpoint, I think it's quite interesting. So so could you give us like a couple of examples, or maybe one example of where it kind of really works in your favor because there's already like this big corporate strategy that makes it a lot easier. And what are some of the things that you're kind of like, okay, this is kind of static. So you have to find a workaround or find a solution because this is kind of, it's not very, very practical. Yeah. So for, you know, very targeted messaging to, to certain audiences, like you said, you definitely want to have your, your graphics and your imagery, you know, match the, you know, the customer based on what you're serving. And so if possible, you know, use a professional photographer and, and basically build your own library of, of stock images. I know that always goes a long way, especially when developing content for the website. You know, it, it helps to have a kind of a stockpile of images that are your own that you can always go to. You were, did you repeat the question as far as? Second question was like, yeah. So how do you deal with, like you have this structure already and basically you said it because 
when you have this structure, you also have the budget. So you have the budget to get like a professional photographer in. So I right. think that's also a very, very big advantage. With, and when you're in the corporate world, you just have to take that opportunity, which does lead to the next question. Is it difficult? Uh, do you prefer working like with one agency who kind of does everything, does the scripting, shoots the video, does the editing of the video, creates the micro content? Or do you in some cases say like, you know, like this person, this company or agency is really good in micro content. This agency is really good in a video and this agency is really good in storytelling let's get them all three of them together and 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 they do it as one or do you just say like no we prefer working with one specific who kind of already knows our brand values and knows our our brand strategy yeah i've actually i've experienced both ways actually for certain projects you know in the past there's been times where we've worked with one agency from start to finish from you know the idealization all the way to you know what you see as a final product and then at other times there may be uh larger campaigns where you're utilizing different agencies and, and different individuals uh, just based off like you said their strengths and so while you may use one agency to help develop the graphics, you know, you may use another agency specifically for the messaging and the drafting of the verbiage that you're using around those graphics. You may use another agency specifically for, for video and for, for animation and things of those of that nature. And so I've, I've seen it both ways. I think that it's, it's kind of rare to find an agency or, or group that is very, very, very strong in, in every aspect of what you need. And so I think with, with most larger corporations, you're, you're seeing them utilize different agencies and different, you know, maybe third-party vendors and, and freelancers to, to help with maybe one campaign, but you're utilizing a lot of different strengths and a lot of different people and, and agencies in order to, to pull off that final campaign. I definitely think that's a fair point because at that scale, when you have that clear vision of your brand voice, as you said, and uh, the stories you want to tell, it should be easy for you to communicate this to the specific uh, agencies to, you know, this is what we want. And you have all these assets and we, we got uh, a common a valid point to that of owning your own stock photos because content is basically king. You can. If, if you have a repository of a lot of content, you can always mix, match, reuse, repurpose it in many ways. You can even supply it to the agencies for them to create something new out of old content in that sense. But we'll quickly go through another question from our viewers. Stephanie says, internal ambassadors make external ones. So what are ways organizations can inspire their employees to be a brand ambassador? Oh yeah, that's guess, that's yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Definitely, as as a digital marketer, if you have the ability to utilize people across your organization and help highlight those individuals, at the end of the day, that just helps build your brand because your brand is you know basically what people think and say about you, and what people think and say about you is primarily based on the people who work for the organization, and so you want to be able to to utilize those people to basically help help build your brand's persona. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to, to use the people that customers interact with and see 
on a daily basis as the face of your brand. I think one of the ways that you can build brand ambassadors is encouraging them to, of course, share your brand's content. But at the same time, you have to, you know, you have to have some guidelines on on who you want speaking for your company and, and for your brand. And so just, just keep that in mind. But, you know, the ability to share content through their social media channels is always one of the best ways to to help build ambassadors. Yeah, especially if you have like dozens of employees, you can be like, so if this post doesn't get 5,000 shares, then basically not everybody is satisfied with what the post looks like. <laughs> but it's always a fun tangent too. I always do that with companies to like, you have 400 employees. Okay, so so where, why aren't there 400 shares? But just fooling <laughs> around. But, but you mentioned uh, customer care a couple of times. And I do want to ask because, I mean, there are all these channels like saying, People can actually call the company to complain or ask questions. They can send emails. They can uh, complain on social. And one of the things that we often talk about is like somebody has a complaint, actually calls the company, and then they kind of get upset because they don't get the answer. And then they send an email to hopefully get the answer from the call that didn't end up the way they wanted it. And then they get kind of upset. And then they go to social media and complain like, this isn't working. And then if you're not really structured and organized, the, the person doing the social media says, oh, I'm really sorry to hear that. Can you send us an email on this email address? and Or can you call us on this number? So, I mean, for a bigger organization which has a lot of channels, like how can you kind of control or structure that in a way that it's it's kind of integrated. Right. So uh, for a lot of large organizations, their call center includes a social media team. And so you have a team of customer service representatives who specifically monitor and watch the social channels and, and answer consumers' questions via those channels. And so that's one way in which you can ensure that regardless of how the customer is reaching out to your organization, you're able to, to cover both sides of that. I think, again, it's a, one of those things where, uh, depending upon the industry, you may see some, some differences. But at this point, I would say that, you know, you need to definitely have a social media customer service aspect to any company, large or small, and have individuals who are able to meet the customer at that place in which they're reaching out to you and, and help service them in the best way possible. So we're talking about meeting the customers halfway and meeting them on the platforms that they're, I guess, present, actively present on. So that brings the question, how with these rapid developments, so you said 2014, it's not so long ago, seven, seven years uh, that, you know, you guys started really developing this space and really diving deep into uh, the developments of Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, social media. So how do you keep up with the industry and all these ever-changing trends? That That's always a challenge because, you know, specifically your, your larger social media channels, the way in which they kind of play with your algorithms and things of that nature, like it's, it's ever-changing. And so in in a way, you just have to, you know, just kind of stay abreast of, of the trends and what's going on. There are some, you know, kind of foundational things that are always going to be true. For instance, uh, you know, 
video content is always going to reach a lot further than most of your other content. There's some of those kind of foundational things that are going to be true across all different uh, social media channels. But I would say one of the ways in which like, I personally try to stay updated is really through the community of, of digital marketers. There's a lot of online resources that you can use. There's always people, you know, providing tips and giving updates and saying, hey, when I do this, you know, I, I've discovered this. Has anyone else seen this happen? And being able to, you know, kind of lean on each other within that community, it definitely helps. And then now most of your social media channels are providing a lot more, you know, marketing, I guess, instructional information, if you will. And so going directly to the platform and staying abreast of what changes they're making and what they're doing definitely helps as well. I, I want to quickly jump into that because I also saw that you're Google certified and that you're in a Facebook circle. So can you tell us a little, like a little bit about, about that? Yeah. So that, that's one of the great things about, you know, the digital marketing space is that honestly, like you can really educate yourself. I know that, you know, of course there are courses that you can take, you know, you can go to school for it and all of those things, but there's really a lot of free resources out there that allow you to get a lot of the education on your own. And so for instance, a Facebook circle is one of those examples where, I mean, primarily it's just a group of people. You have, you have developers there, you have marketers there. There's a lot of cities who have like basically chapters of the circle within their city. Most of them are, you know, pretty much free to join. Uh, a lot of them are based on, you know, Facebook groups and things of that nature. And so just entering those communities and getting to know people definitely helps uh, go a long way. And you're also able to learn more, gather tips from others. You know, it helps to know what people are doing in, in different spaces and in different industries. And so, like I said, there's, there's a large community there and a lot of people are, are very helpful. And so that's, that's one of the best ways to, to stay abreast of what's, what's changing, what's happening and what's going on. So be engaged in basically active communities within your space uh, to keep up to date. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. I, I see and that in any aspect of industry. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, most, most companies, especially like Facebook and, and Google are great examples of, you know, they actually kind of go out of their way in order to, to help educate digital marketers. For instance, you know, with Facebook, they provide a lot of online courses that you can take. They provide online certifications as well within, you know, Facebook business. There are different resources that you can reach out to that will help assess what you're doing, whether your company is big or small and, and kind of give you tips there. Uh, a lot of them were hosting, you know, before COVID, of course, were hosting free events where you can go and learn more. I know one of the events that I attended was Boost with Facebook. And that was a completely free event hosted by Facebook where you can go and speak directly to, you know, marketing experts there and, and kind of learn more about what was taking place that year and some of the changes and innovations that they were looking at. And so there's, there's a lot of free material, a lot of, a lot of free resources out there that you can use. And because it's, you know, ever changing, it almost has to be free <laughs> because it changes so often and so quick that, you know, if we were all to go to school and like technically get degrees for this, like we would have to be in school constantly because, you know, the, the world is ever changing. So. 
quick tangent there. You mentioned COVID. Before COVID, you had these events. So in your space in particular, how has COVID impacted your job? Has it like, you know, benefited, made it easier? Because now everything's, everyone is moving more online because in-person isn't safe anymore. How, what's your general experience on that? I think that it's definitely, I think it's definitely highlighted how important the digital space is and how important digital marketing is and just having a strong digital infrastructure is for a lot of companies. You know, of course, companies that were already, you know, geared towards meeting their customers in the digital space, you know, the impact of COVID was probably relatively smaller for them versus customer, I mean, versus organizations that were still probably based on, you know, brick and mortar stores, if you will. And so I think that COVID-19 definitely helped to, I guess, uh, put a focus on how important it is to meet customers in the digital space and being able to use the tools available to, you know, to reach those customers and advertise to them. Yeah, it's definitely highlighted through this pandemic. Before we uh, go about the pandemic a little bit further, I think actually we also had a Facebook Boost event in Suriname, Diego. I'm not sure if you were here or if you remember it, but I think it was also, and they gave free training to to locals to also give training on Facebook, but they were also only allowed to do it for free. It was something like that, but it was I it was think free education. I remember I attended, yeah. but I have no recollection of it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually, I actually I remember because there's somebody in our team that actually went to the training session and became a trainer as well. And actually, a couple of our clients actually also did it. Marketing, a marketing department of our clients that actually also did the training as well. But that's interesting. So for for COVID especially, yeah, I think I think we are kind of lucky in in our space in the digital marketing space with COVID because it's it's actually providing an a solution, but mm-hmm. but not everything, especially in Suriname, not everything is already properly connected. So also with the, the current situation in, in the US, how how big enough of an improvement has it been to actually also do your payments online? And especially for the groups that are not used to doing online payments, have you guys seen a move more towards that, that they become better uh, aware on how they can actually do everything digital as well? Or are you still finding hiccups with, with especially the older groups or people that are not that uh, familiar with the digital space? Yeah, I would say that we definitely provided more educational pieces about how to, you know, kind of engage us through digital channels. Of course, you know, going paperless is, is one of the big pushes that we have for for our customers and, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, also from an environmental standpoint, going paperless is, is great. We do have the ability for customers to pay their bills on. And so we provided additional instruction, you know, lots of email marketing and social media marketing around how to do it, how to be informed about your bill, different alerts that you can set up and things of that nature. I think you'll always have those who prefer to, you know, pay through more traditional means, but as time goes on and as these processes become, you know, quicker, faster and easier to use, I think you'll definitely see, you know, more adoption. And then, of course, you know, for for most of the general for most of you know the population now, everything is done online. And so there's just a need to ensure that whatever 
tools that you're providing your customers are kind of meeting that standard and meeting that expectation that they're seeing, you know, through other industries and, and other digital means. And so uh, you just don't want to be the, the industry that falls behind there. So to move into the, I guess, final phase stage of this conversation, we'd like to hit you with some like quick fire, your quick thoughts, first thoughts on what, what you think on what's happening in the space. So any particular trend or hot topic that comes to mind that we can expect coming in the near future that will be big? Yeah, I think that there's, I think there's quite a few different aspects of digital marketing that are going to be, you know, kind of kind of interesting moving forward. I think one of the ones that that comes to mind right away is the programmatic advertisements that we're seeing. They've always existed, but now they're becoming a lot more, a lot more targeted and the ability to target people is becoming pretty elite now. And the reasoning behind that is that you're now using like artificial intelligence to help cater ads specifically for the individual. And so that's something that you're seeing larger companies do now, you know, through social media and through uh, some of that programming advertising that you're seeing on websites. And so that's, that's definitely interesting. Also, I would say for, for social media, geo-targeting, you know, and, and geo-fencing, again, that's something that's, that's been around for a while, but when you combine that with the programming advertising that's taking place, like it, it gets it gets pretty scary at that point because you, you're now not only able to, you know, target people within, you know, maybe say a couple couple miles of, let's say you own a restaurant. You may be able to target people within a couple miles of your restaurant. So as, as I'm driving by, you know, I'm, I'm getting this ad for your restaurant. And then with programming advertising, and the ability to, you know, kind of use my cookies and things of that nature. Not only are you able to say, okay, Isaac's driving by my restaurant, let me feed him an ad, but I also know that last time he ordered from us, he ordered this specific meal. So I'm gonna make sure that's included in the advertisement as well. And now you know you have this very personalized ad specific to me. And so that that's one of the things that's you know pretty interesting that I, I see coming especially in the retail space. And so there's that, there's committed reality. You're starting to see advertisers use that and it's already in place in, in some ways, but that's the you know ability to kind of see the product or, or see the service without it actually being there. And so I guess one example is, you know, being able to go to a website and basically take a picture of your room and, you know, being able to select this piece of furniture and place it in your room. Yeah, I, I've seen those, yeah. Um, With clothing and glasses as right. well. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, there, there's some some interesting trends. How, how does that work? Wait, wait, wait. Just, just, just to, to fully grasp what you just mentioned, just, just give us an example of how that would work. So uh, with, with augmented reality, you know, right now you're seeing it, like for instance, let's say home improvement. I have this room, I want to paint the room a different color. With augmented reality, you now have certain services and, and there are, you know, agencies that's looking at, you know, how, how to do this, but you can take a picture of your room, take a video of your room using your smartphone, and then through the website, through the service, you're able to basically paint your wall and see you know, how it would actually look before actually purchasing the paint. There are augmented reality you know, where you can you know, use 
use different tools to see how a piece of furniture may look in your room. I'm trying to think of some other examples. I've, um, I, I've actually seen one on a few months ago on Amazon where they had this custom shirt tailor-made where you just make a photo of yourself and put in some dimensions. Uh, yeah. And it's and, supposed to be a perfect shirt. Yeah. And then yeah, uh, the, it wasn't that perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you did their experiment. Yeah, being able to, you know, try on a pair of glasses, you know, there's makeup companies now where, you know, you can try on lipstick without actually trying on the lipstick. You're just, you know, shooting a selfie video of yourself and toggling through the different options. And so, yeah, that, that's something that's, I think that's going to become a little more mainstream. And I think that different industries are looking at ways to utilize that because of course, you know, that's, that's a, a great selling feature when I can, you know, basically try the product before purchasing it. Before I go to my last question, we got some quick follow-ups uh, from the chat here on specifically what you are talking about. What are communication trends that you are, guys are keeping on this year in particular? And her second question is, what skills are sought after for following these trends? I guess skills in particular, is it programming? Is it writing? Is it, you name it, augmented reality? Okay. Yeah, so the trends for this year, I think that voice search is something that you're going to see a lot of companies invest more time and effort into because people are now, you know, using search engines via voice. So that's something that I think you'll see a lot more time and energy put into. Uh, a lot of companies are going to, you know, invest more in search engine optimization from a voice standpoint. You're also uh, seeing visual search become a little more popular now. And that is, you know, where basically, you know, you can take a picture of an item, drop it into Google, and then, you know, use that as a search. You know, I see a new car driving by. I'm like, oh, wow, you know, that looks great. You know, I may be able to snap the picture of someone's car <laughs> in, a, in the parking lot and drop that into Google and use that to do my search. And so I think visual search is something that we're going to see come a little, become a little more popular probably in the next year or so as well. Skills that uh, would be in demand? Yeah, I would, I would honestly say, uh, I don't know if you would necessarily refer to them as skills, I think there are some some traits that are definitely useful. Number one being flexible. Flexibility is is big, and I would say you know patience is huge because things are ever changing. And also, in order to run successful uh, digital marketing campaigns and ads, you have to be able to kind of tweak uh, things as they go. You know, it, with more traditional marketing, you're able to put up a billboard and just hope for the best. Where with digital marketing, you know, you put an ad out there, but then you're also have you also have the ability to kind of tweak that ad and who is targeting. You're able to do A/B testing, and so there are some additional, I guess, things that you can do in order to make that ad more effective. And so, yeah, flexibility, patience. I would say again, having a, a strong writing background definitely helps. And yeah, yeah, I, th I think there's probably more emotional traits that you will find <laughs> useful. Uh, That's interesting. Before I hand yeah, it over it, to you, yeah. Sean, look, because uh, you mentioned writing there at the end. So mm -hmm. I, I guess my final question to you is, if you had to break down writing in a practical sense, do you have a way or simple steps for someone to become 
a better writer or to write a simple piece? Yeah, as always, I would say, you know, practice makes perfect. <laughs> so, you know, the more that you can, the more topics and things that you can find to write about definitely helps build your strength. In the beginning, you know, I would say start off, especially if uh, you're a digital marketer for a, a smaller company or a smaller organization. Again, you want to produce content. So one of the great ways to do that is, you know, maybe develop a blog for that company. Give maybe start advice articles that feature some of the products and services that would be useful to the customers. So there, there's different ways like that where you can just start to develop this content, write more. And, and you know, as you do it, I think the, the better you become at it. That's uh, great advice. So I want to know, because we spoke a lot about ads, do you still believe in organic reach? And how would you say your balance between organic versus paid? How do you feel about the, the battle between the two? I think that, to, to be honest, I feel like organic reach is a, a thing of the past. Like, it's very difficult to, to create content that is going to just kind of catch fire on its on its own outside of, you know, like those viral type of, of miracles, I guess you could say. But, you know, generally speaking, if you're if you're putting out just kind of general brand messaging, yeah, or, organic reach is, is little to nothing these days. And so you have to you have to pay to play now. And so I would always suggest that even if you're just putting, you know, a couple of dollars behind a post or behind an ad, it's always best to put a little bit of money behind it. And then what that's going to do is, is help drive people back to your page and to your other content. And then at that point, you know, that's where you may see, you know, more of an organic reach, but it's coming from the fact that you're paying to- You have to pay first. In the first place, right. And so I, yeah. I wouldn't necessarily say, you know, pay for everything, but be strategic in what you're paying for. And some of your stronger content, put money behind it because it's going to drive people back to your website, back to your social channels. And then once they're there, some of those posts that you made that were strictly meant for, you know, organic reach, that's when you'll start to catch those eyes. Yeah, that's good advice. I think I remember Nike had a strategy when they came out with like their new commercials. They would they would, they would just advertise it for like the first eight hours, and then when it went viral, they kind of pulled the ad. And I think my right. most successful, my successful post, my most successful post on Facebook was kind of similar. That at a certain point, the post was going so viral that the ad didn't get the opportunity to run because organically the shares were going faster than the ad. So there, there is some, but, but especially for corporate, like you said, for corporate or for companies to, to go viral with organic, like on a daily basis, it's, it's, it's incredibly hard. Yeah. And then I come to my final question, which is worse? Censorship on social media by the platform or cancel culture. <laughs> wow, that's that's a that's a tough one. That's a tough one. I can see arguments for for both sides. To, to be honest, I, I think that censorship is 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 touchy. It's a touchy it's a touchy topic. I do think that there is somewhat of a responsibility for these platforms to you know hold individuals accountable for the type of content that they're putting out there. And so 
if there's content being put out that, you know, can cause harm to others, you know, that's threatening violence and things of that nature, I do think that there is somewhat of a responsibility for the platform to do its best to, you know, keep that type of content, you know, all, off the platform. But then, you know, there's also the aspect of, like you said, council culture. And I, I think with with quote-unquote council culture, when you're talking about individuals, you know, it, social media is kind of like this, this free enterprise where, you know, you can make or break yourself, basically. And so, I, I don't know. I, I think it's tough because everyone has an audience. And if you do or say something that, you know, takes people away from your audience, I, I don't know, you know, are are you being canceled or are you canceling yourself? I guess <laughs> would be the question. So yeah, I, I think overall, so, it's- so cancel, cancel culture, you kind of can you can avoid it. Whereas censorship, well, basically, you can also avoid censorship. Like Ruben says in the comments, it's a really difficult one. But maybe yeah. we can take that one away. So for everybody watching, do tell us in the comments what what do you think is worse? Is cancel culture worse or is censorship on social media worse? Do let us know in the comments. Hey Isaac, you've you've been a fantastic guest. We've kept you here uh, 20 minutes longer than we originally planned. And that's kind of uh, the norm now, Diego. So we might have to reconsider our scheduling. Yeah. Diego, where can we listen to the to the audio version? Where can we view these recordings back for those who are joining in for the first time? Uh, yeah, sure. Again, Isaac, thank you for joining us and sharing your thoughts on some difficult conversations. We keep, try to keep it social as well. But as you guys know, this was Social Confos. Uh, we are live every Tuesday at night. 9 p.m. Surinamese time, that's 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And process episodes will be released on the following Saturday on the website and all podcasting platforms. So if you got friends, family, who you think will get a take out of this, share that with them there on convos.com. It's we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. So we got Spotify and Suriname now. So that's a great platform to listen up. And with that being said, let us know what you thought in the comments. Uh, we appreciate all feedback and we will see you next week on Social Convos. Bye -bye. Thanks a lot, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for being here as well. See you guys next week. <laughs>